Welcome back to another episode of the Hitchcock Minute. Each week, Movies by Minute hosts examine the 1959 Alfred Hitchcock-directed thriller, North by Northwest, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm Rebo Saltnape of DeanHaspiel.com. <laughs> and I'm Josh Newfeld of JoshNewfeld.com. And together we co-host Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean. Yes, we do. And today we are here to talk about Minute 132 of North by Northwest, which starts with a man swinging a flashlight around on the top of Mount Rushmore and ends with Eve and Roger on the side of Mount Rushmore. Mm-hmm. So do you have a little more descriptive recap for the listeners? Sure. I mean, I wrote down some notes. The scene, like you said, starts with a man with a flashlight atop Mount Rushmore. Then we cut to Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint slowly climbing down the side of Mount Rushmore. And, you know, even though it's starting to create like a tension, they seem to be kind of nonchalant about it a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. at first. There are many shots of like presidential noses and nostrils, I noticed, like really <laughs> cool angles, you know, up the nose, you know, a profile of a nose. Yes. Uh, you can definitely recognize George Washington. Well, you do you know that this movie, I'm, and I'm sure that some of our co-hosts have already mentioned, but at one point, the proposed titles for this movie included The Man in Lincoln's Nose Come was on. actually a title they were thinking of. That's and there was going to be a scene where Cary Grant would be hiding in Lincoln's nostril and then would have a sneezing fit and he would reveal That's his hilarious. location because he sneezed inside of Lincoln's nose. And remind me to tell you about a story that I wrote and have not drawn yet involving Lincoln and I think George Washington of Mount Rushmore. Really? Okay. I don't, it could be a Red Hook story or another character, but I'll tell you about that in a minute. Nice. Um, so then this minute basically sets the stage between heroes and henchmen and, you know, where everyone is, where they're going to climb to. And so if you're doing the math, you can tell, you know, which presidential head certain characters are at. And, and that creates a distance, you know, and a sense of time and urgency. And then that's where we discover that Carrie Grant and Eva Marie Saint are hiding between Washington and Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Well, we saw them kind of go down between that those two heads last minute. Sure. But now they're climbing they're down like there. the gap between the two heads. Yeah. And they're kind of hanging out for a little while, it seems like. They're hanging out, and they, they seem to be kind of, like, again, there's not a total sense of urgency. Yeah. Like, it's hard to imagine if this were you and I being chased by guys with guns that we would stop and, like, have right. a pleasant conversation and then end up proposing marriage. But I was going to say, <laughs> if... It wasn't me, but it was... I'm already married. If it was your wife, you know, previous to getting married. Sure. And this would be like a good time to propose to her. (laughs) This might be the time to do it, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, the next note I have is that Carrie proposes marriage to Eva, and she questions his two previous marriages. Mm -hmm. Um, He says that they divorced him for living too dull a life, which is a little wink and joke toward what's (laughs) happening in the current situation in the movie. Yeah. And he basically, Carrie says, come on, like, let's keep going. And uh, suggesting they continue down the side of the mountain when the heel of Eva's shoe snaps and she falls. And like you were saying, in every chase scene, something, somebody has to stumble or something has to go wrong like that. So that's the way it works. Yeah, I mean, my question to you in the green room was, were they planning on just hiding there the whole time and waiting for the bad guys to eventually give up and go away? Or was he literally 
planning on continuing down, scaling this like sheer cliff of, of noses and nostrils and them escaping that way? Because it seemed like he said, we had a little debate about it. when he says, come on, and he sort of turns and looks down, it looks like he's planning on on continuing down. And that's what causes her to snap her. Well, the danger is shoe. Up. the danger is all above them, right? right? Is people with guns and whatnot and yeah. airplanes and this, you know, amazing house that doesn't exist that happens to be there. Right. Uh, so the only way to escape is to go down. So, and also think about this, like you're not clearly thinking in a situation like that because you're, and in this case, they're on Mount Rushmore. Right. Like, where do you go? You mm-hmm. know, it is, it's so hazardous and terrifying. And if they found like a route that they feel comfortable with, clearly they do because right. they're able to have this little conversation. I wish we had like, not to fault the master, but I wish right. there had been like a shot or a moment where he's like, I see a way that we can get down. Where you can see the showed, bottom. Yeah, or it showed like a, a, a little flight of steps that was only for people who service the the monument or sure. something. But uh, I think it's a it, little it takes, unclear. But it takes away from the drama if mm-hmm. you're like, oh, it's just right over there. We just got to get over there. But you know? that could increase the drama because then they never get there. That's true. You know? And actually, that would befit Hitchcock's sensibilities because he always let the viewer in on mm-hmm. other information that the protagonist didn't have. Exactly. But I also think it was just such a kind of crazy space to be in that he was probably just playing that up. Right. You know? And like, you know, we'll obviously we we're gonna keep track with like how accurate this looks, you mm-hmm. know, because part of what sells it is the accuracy of it. Right. And I could talk a little bit about um how they did that. Because we sort of teased it last episode. So um, what happened was that, you know, Hitchcock and the filmmakers approached the Park Service at Mount Rushmore about filming there. And the Park Service said, absolutely not. You know, it's a desecration to our monuments for you to, like, shoot some kind of thriller or action thing happening there. And we forbid it. And so then Hitchcock and MGM were like, well, what if we... You know, don't shoot anything like that there, but we just want to shoot a couple of scenes, you know, of the monument itself and in the cafeteria and and all that. But we're not going to, you know, definitely the script is not going to have any scene that involves people climbing the side of Mount Mm. Rushmore. And so uh, they lied. Mm. And then the, the Park Service said, okay, and they let them film. So there are some scenes earlier in the movie, like when Cary Grant is looking up at the monument from mm-hmm. like an observation deck, and then the scene that actually takes place in the cafeteria where Eve shoots Roger, those were actually filmed at Mount Rushmore. And there's a couple of other like pickup shots and things like that. Right. But then when it was revealed that they were actually planning on doing this whole chase scene hanging off the side thing, and they ended up filming all of that stuff in a back lot in Hollywood and constructing fake monuments to scale so that's all set stuff god what do they do with those things i know i think they always end up destroying them which is such a shame because i'd love to have you know washington nose in my apartment what's the thing is it the williamsburg building that's was the tallest building in brooklyn i think so the the williamsburg bank building yeah which still is there but it's clearly not the tallest building in brooklyn right not anymore but i think it was at one point and I remember working on Bored to Death, you know, Jonathan Ames' show. Yeah. And there was a scene in one of the episodes where I think Zach Galifianakis is hanging on to the clock or something, kind of like the famous Harold Lloyd or Jason Schwartzman. They were like best buddies. And they had to build like basically a three-story version of that in this, you know, the Navy Yards. Yeah. And I just remember thinking after this amazing scene and all this stunt work and everything... They just trash it. I think they just tear it down. It's yeah, done. There, mu- there must be like legal reasons why they Maybe. do that. 
like so that those things don't get out and people profit off them sure without being connected with the and production or about, something um, but it is a but shame. then star wars i'm sure like well who knows well i don't know about Star Wars, but i know with like the lord of the rings like they built the whole hobbit set right. the whole town of hobbiton and then they had destroyed all of it and then they ended up rebuilding it again because they filmed the hobbit no, the prequel. Right. So they had to kind of build it all oh, again. Right. You know the <laughs> and island. Now I think it's there for tourists to visit. Sure. They learned well, their lesson. Can, it's their little Disney World kind of thing. Yeah. And I know that like the island that Skywalker, older Luke Skywalker, uh, you know, basically hibernates at. Yeah. You know, that they had these actual. I forget what the animals were. The but, porgs. Por- but there were so many of them. Instead of CGIing oh, them out. Yeah. They created a fake alien porg. To, and put it into the story. Oh, is that what there they There were so many oh, on the okay. island in all the shots. They're like, you know so what? So they just digitally replaced them with the porgs? With instead? porgs oh, and, and just kept them in there in the background. <laughs> and then, you know, create a little character. That's awesome. Uh, but yeah, no, just going back to, and maybe the parks department was also like, well, we don't want to encourage anybody climbing these things anyway. Which is why, if, but why would you be encouraged to do that? After watching the movie. Right, when everyone almost dies. You know, when most of the people yeah. do. Spoiler alert. Yeah, and and actually the, the Parks Department and like one of the senators from South Dakota, you know, where Mount Rushmore is, was mm-hmm. actually so upset about this film, really? you know, when they found out about it, that they sent letters and scolded MGM and Hitchcock and even tried to get the film prevented from being released. But it was all too late at that point. It actually just fed into the publicity but think about not only publicity because it makes you want to you know see what the thing is that people are you know right oh i'm sure it increased tourism like absolutely like 50 percent. but it just reminds you the power of cinema like it's just a movie folks like Mm -hmm. and then the power of hitchcock at the time too like here's his next movie they knew everyone would go see it yeah and actually i was reading i read a little article about that whole controversy and it turned out that a lot of the publicity and like, you know, pre-release publicity done by like Hollywood reporter types and gossip columnists like totally lied and said, this was actually filmed on Mount Rushmore mm-hmm. and Cary Grant and even Marie Saint hung on the side of, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. they just totally made up stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, Hollywood's <laughs> famous news. for lying. It's, yeah. it's famous. Didn't Terry Gilliam was trying to raise funds for his movie Berlin. And if you remember the ending, it's very bleak. Great it's a very, movie. Yeah. It's a great movie. And a lot of the bigger investors said, uh, we'll give you money if you change it to a happier ending. So he wrote a happier ending and then shot and edited the, the original ending. Didn't he actually even film a happier ending? And uh, like maybe, maybe they screened that for people, but then maybe. they released the actual release version yeah. had the darker yeah, ending. Yeah. <laughs> but that uh, happens. This happens all the time. Yeah. But it did make me think about cliffhangers i know it's very literal yes but they literally are hanging on a cliff the side of a cliff having this conversation about you know marriage and divorce and and that's not where the term came from do you think it can't have been because if you think about the old 1940s serials date 1959 yeah it had to have yeah but this literally is a cliffhanger movie you're right you know another wink by the droll mr hitchcock that's right and i'm wondering like it made me think about like do you have favorite cliffhanger moments from cinema? Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know what I think about just now? It just popped in my head was Blade Runner. What scene? When Harrison Ford is hanging on the side of that building and Rucker Howard lifts him up with his one oh, arm. yeah. But yeah. he literally is hanging out and he's like crushing his fingers. There's right. always the crushing the fingers with the boot kind right, of thing, right. you know, moment. That might be happening in this film as well. I mean, it happens. It might it, just happen. It happens all the time. <laughs> but you know what? We love it. Yeah. Everyone loves the cliffhangers. Mm-hmm. 
you know but there's like literal cliffhangers like this and there are action movies that have you know scenes where someone's about to well, go the, the off term, the side of a building but there's also the term is a narrative term now that's right right that's right that is utilized in, will in they or won't they movie. will yeah. they survive this moment right. you know wait till next week or mm-hmm. next episode or turn or the just page what choice will this what will character the make be? yeah in fact they have well i don't know if they're cliffhangers but didn't your father at one point uh, contribute to a series, uh, Choose Your Own Adventure yes, type thing? Yes, that's right. And I'm yeah. not saying that they were cliffhangers necessarily, mm-hmm. but there's a crossroad, a mm-hmm. moment, you know, a fork in the road. Yeah. Do you go left? Do you go right? Right. And then follow that part of the adventure. Yeah. yeah. Interplanetary spy adventures. Mm. And some of them were illustrated by some pretty well-known... Uh, Alex Nino. Alex Nino. And yeah. other folks, yeah. Len Newfeld, that's my dad's name. And actually, getting back to credits, you mentioned Bored to Death before. So for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with your oeuvre, what was that and what was your involvement with it? Well, I worked on this TV show that lasted for three years on HBO. Great show. by Jonathan Ames. And it literally changed my first name. What? Yeah, to Emmy Award winning artist Dean Haspiel. Yeah, Dean is just like one of your middle names now. That's right. That's why you keep having trouble remembering it when we do the intros. Yeah, there's so many other names. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so then, uh, yeah, I worked on this TV show for a few years. I did the illustrations for the Zach Galifianakis character that was loosely based on me. Mm -hmm. Um, He was a cartoonist. And because the creator of the show, Jonathan Ames, is a good buddy of yours. And, and we worked on a graphic novel called The Alcoholic. Right. We've done other collaborations. But he was familiar enough with your trials and tribulations that he used that as a springboard for a That's character right. who's a little more exaggerated than you. Well, uh, we're actually tamer. Tamer? Think about in it. In some ways, yes. <laughs> but a lot of the background kind of storyline that he borrowed from me, let's right. say, uh, not necessarily the characterization. But when he would draw comics or, you know, whatever, I illustrated that stuff as well as contributed design work to the opening credit sequence, which is what I won the Emmy Award for. So you basically designed all of the look and the characters of the opening sequence yes. and then animators took that and created right. the actual animation. But That's you right. were a credited right. member of that team and thus you have an Emmy Award in your That's right. apartment. That's right. That I look at every night and every morning. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Well, you, something's got to get you up in the morning and put you to sleep. So, but yeah, just getting back to the proposal scene, it's so Hitchcockian in a way. Like, it's so underplayed yeah. by these two actors. Like, so they've had some romantic scenes already. There's been some intense scenes between them at one point. You know, they they fell in love, and then the Cary Grant character was very angry at Eve mm-hmm. and thought he had betrayed her, and then she actually shot him. Mm-hmm. It was all part of an act, but there's been a lot of intense emotion. But here they are hanging on the side of a cliff with people pursuing them, and they have this very, like, genteel and sort of understated conversation, but he actually proposed to her. But, she said, is that a proposition? And he said, it's a proposal, sweetie. That's right. So obviously, we have to mention that this whole moment of the proposition proposal is a callback right. to when Roger and Eve met for the first time on the train, the 20th Century Limited, That's right. when they were sitting together in the dining car, and she was being very forward with him, and he said, is that a proposition to her? So this is a little callback, proposition proposal. <laughs> and I think it also is helping not only him, but her, to rally her to think positive, we're going to get out of this, Hmm. and this will be at least what I think is a good idea, you know, the the payoff of surviving this situation, you know? Wait, that's her point of view or his point of view? That's his point of view. Okay. So you think he was trying, 
Was he actually proposing to her though? I mean, I think he was. I think he, he was actually proposing to her. The thing that's he funny didn't have about a ring, but you but know. think about the scene. She's kind of underplaying it. She's almost kind of sighing in a sexual way, mm-hmm. which is a little bit of a, a projection of what's going to happen maybe later. Sure. And for him, I love Cary Grant, but he always sounds like he's faking an accent to me. Well, it's that weird mid-Atlantic accent. You know that term, right? It's like that. He's actually British. I mean, he was right. born in England. Cary Grant. I forget his real name, but. Mm-hmm. Archibald Archie, yeah, Archie yeah. Leach. Oh, okay. But he and Catherine Hepburn and tons of other, and James Mason, all of them, whether they were American or British, have this mid-Atlantic accent, which is somewhere between an English accent and an American accent. And that was sort of the style of, in the movies of the 1940s and 1950s. And I've always been thrown off by it. Yeah. It's a very strange accent. And it's very casual. He yeah, talks very casually. Even just, when he's angry, he's casual. Right, it make it pulls you out a little bit of yeah. the of the reality of the moment. It's yeah. a very affected accent. You were talking last episode about on the waterfront, and mm-hmm. I think one of the things that Marlon Brando has been credited for almost more than anything else was that he brought this realism mm-hmm. of acting, this mm-hmm. new method acting to cinema that was really transgressive at that point. Like and people were ready it, for that. And Cary Grant was definitely of the old school. And it's about elocution, like the way he says the mm-hmm. word kind of has a, a pitter patter to it you know yeah and it's funny because his style of acting is way after brando's on the waterfront you know a black and white film this is a color movie yeah but know? i think on the waterfront came out like 52 53 and this is 59 i mean they're in, oh so it's in the same decade it's in the same decade huh. it's just a style sure because grant is older and right. he, you know right. brando and james dean were part of that new generation rebels and Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn, and James Mason are part of that old 1930s, mm-hmm. you know, screwball mm-hmm. comedy and mm-hmm. that really affected style of Hollywood that, right. that was definitely still dominant, I would say, right. at this point. Right. So she doesn't say no to his proposal. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's still out there or the implication is that she says yes, but then it is well, kind of... Well, she, she might need his help. So don't say no yet. In, right. In oh, I see what you're saying. Right. The situation. <laughs> yeah. Could you imagine? could be a little bit, uh, you know, self-interested in the <laughs> situation. Said no, like he's that. like, Bye. He's like, we'll see you later. <laughs> I've got the microfilm, That's so right. nice knowing you. <laughs> yeah, but then there's that moment where she stumbles and her heel breaks. See, she shouldn't have been climbing down in those heels. Mm-hmm. And then as she falls down by him, she grabs his pants and they rip open, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is very forward of her. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and it's, it's like funny because I don't know if it ever comes up again, but now I'm going to like be thinking the entire time, like he's, he's got a big hole in his Well, pants. now that we're scrutinizing the movie, you know, minute by minute, but yeah. it is funny because I don't think there's any other narrative purpose to the, the, like, does the hole in his pants save his life later or something right. like, or, <laughs> you know, or she's able to grab on that or like, I don't think so. I like the idea of the hole in his pants saving his life. <laughs> Uh, it's I don't I don't know if we come back to it, but I'm definitely yeah. going to be like we should think about that and bring it up again. But you mentioned it, last episode that he was he cared about his clothing, so yes. maybe Hitchcock was messing with him a little. Maybe bit, yeah, which I don't he liked know. to do with his actors. True, true. He's like, you like those pants? I'm going to rip them. <laughs> and then when she falls. It doesn't look like a fake fall. It looks like she really fell and hurt herself. And I, I, I think next episode we see her actually like holding on to like a part of her arm that sure. she hit. So I'm wondering sure. like sure. the stunts there might have been a little rough. Yep. But again, getting back to Cary Grant's clothes. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff about his suit and how great he looks in that suit. And it's sort of like the classic 
Cary Grant look or like it popularized that certain cut and that color of suit and even other movies like do you ever see the movie Collateral with Tom yes. Cruise yes. and Jamie Foxx so yep. Tom Cruise is basically wearing that same exact suit throughout that movie mm. uh, so it's a little homage even though mm. he's the bad guy in that film but for these scenes where Grant is wearing the black pants and the white shirt his white shirt is cut really differently than his suit shirts where it's very billowy. It's almost like a pirate shirt, if you noticed. And supposedly that was because since he's doing so much physical work in this scene and the previous scenes, they needed like a, a shirt that had a little more room in it so it wouldn't... A little give? Yeah, a little thing? more give and wouldn't stretch or pull out or whatever. Huh. So huh. it is It's interesting because it's like he changes his look, you know, in the last act of the film. It just as a quick sidebar, you mentioned Collateral. A director pal of mine took me to see that movie before it came out, like, I don't know, like a month before it came out, uh-huh. in a small theater situation with other directors, and the lights come up, the movie ended, and I'm like, oh, that was pretty good, and suddenly they pull out three chairs, four chairs, a moderator, and then Michael Mann, Tom Cruise, and Jamie Foxx walk out. Holy crap. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? And he had not told me that part of the evening. Wow. And, and it was like a really small gathering? It was a small gathering because he's, like I said, he's a director. So yeah. it must have been some kind of thing that they're all involved in where you get to see the movie and get to talk to the people who make the movie, right? Okay. And at their, the end of the Q&A, they're like, okay, we're all going to hang out in this other room now. I'm like, what? Nice. And as Tom Cruise is walking by, I said, Tom. And he looks at me. And this was right before they made the first, and this is where I'll give it away. I go, Iron Man? And he looks at me and he squints and he kind of does this performative thing. And he just looks like he's just talking to only me in the room, which uh-huh. made me realize why he's a star. Because uh-huh. he can make you feel like right. it's just you and him in a room. Right. And he goes, I really wanted it to work out. And this is before they announced who was going to play Tony Stark in the Iron Man movie. Because he was one of the people they were oh, wooing I did not for the know role. That. In wow. fact, uh, they did a, a miniseries, Iron Man miniseries at Marvel that looked a lot like him. Tony Stark was, you know... They, like they had produced it before the they film came They produced it out? before the film. Oh, interesting. I think it was a Warren Ellis comic called Extremis. Uh-huh. And the artist had drawn Tony Stark to look like Tom Cruise. And then we hung out and I, I got a great anecdote from Jamie Foxx about a scene that he did in the movie Collateral. Mm-hmm. And I asked him how he prepared for that. And everyone was just open and great. And it was, it was wild. I love that movie. I've seen that movie probably four or five times. It's, it's so good. It's so well done. So tight. Yep. The characters are, are great. It's got humor. It's really tense. Great action. Yep. It yep. totally pays off. It's like one of those just totally satisfying films mm-hmm. on every level. So mm-hmm. that's so cool that you got to... Uh, and you know who's supposed to play the, the Tom Cruise character originally? Robert Downey Jr. Alan Alda. <laughs> You're kidding. I am kidding. You're kidding. <laughs> I know it's your favorite. <laughs> <laughs> They're a very different movie. Okay, hold on. I'll catch you. I have a really great shot. Just give me a sec. <laughs> and then you do a little Groucho Marx routine. That's right. Yeah. Wow. Well. So I have two more questions, but if you think we want to save it for the next episode. Uh, the only other thing I did want to mention because it's so great in these two minutes that we've seen so far is Bernard Herrmann's music. Mm. I mean, how great. one of my faves. Yeah. I mean, just again, I'm sure I know that you previous hosts have talked about it, but I mean, just listen to the list of movies that this guy scored. Psycho, North by Northwest, The Man Who Knew Too Much, Vertigo, that's just Hitchcock movies. And then we've got Citizen Kane. Oh, that little movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, Cape Fear, and if I remember right, when they did the 
remake of Cape Fear with Robert De Niro, they used the same music. They didn't even do new music. It was so good. They just kept Bernard Herrmann's score. Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver. I mean, One of my top 10 movies as well. So this guy was like, he was John Williams before John Williams. He was the best. Yeah. He's the best. I actually listen to him when I draw sometimes. Just it, wait, so, he talks to you? No. Oh, I, get, I see what you're saying. The, the music, you listen to his and then music. I, <laughs> Sorry, folks. I apologize for Josh. <laughs> I apologize for myself. Okay. So final thought just about the monuments themselves. Again, I'm covering for folks if I'm not sure if they talked about it or not, but the reason why those particular four presidents are there, and this was you know, under the creative auspices of, of a sculptor named Gutzon Borglum. Wait, the the real sculptors. the real sculptor wow. of, the, of Mount Rushmore, um, and he died before the uh, monument was unveiled in 1941. So his son Lincoln Borglum continued, you know, finished it up for him. But it's George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, and Abe Lincoln, and they represent respectively the birth of the United States, the growth of the United States, the development of the United States, and the preservation of the United States. Wow, I, I did wonder why those four were chosen. Obviously, I know lots of, as we all do, know different people, diverse people, uh, different ages. And I've definitely talked to certain people that are like, the four people I would pick would be, and then they'd change it mm-hmm. to their, whoever they think should be those monuments. And I'm like, well, that's that. You know, like, let it be what it is and then go right. carve another mountain. Right. I mean, <laughs> it know, is like, the ultimate monument to the four dead white men. But That's true. You know, like, it's it's hard to argue that those are not four of the most important presidents that this country's had. And, and the they, context they, you put the it in. The fact is that those are the guys who were president right. for good or ill. And actually, I did read that at one point before the whole monument was finished, I think sometime in the 1930s, because I think it took like 20 or 30 years for the whole thing to you know, come to fruition. There was a proposal that Susan B. Anthony be mm. added to the monument. And, mm. the, and I think that would have happened, except that they were always facing budget shortfalls, mm. because it was it's kind of one of those projects that sounds crazy until it actually is unveiled. And you're like, holy crap, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. But like as people are doing, they're like, we're going to carve faces of presidents right. giant into the side of a mountain. Yeah. So unfortunately, they just didn't have the funding to right. add her. So right. yeah, another story of women being short shrifted. But at least even back in the 1930s, there was a movement to have her. Right. You know, it, it's pretty cool that she was considered important enough to be up there on. Right. So I, I mean, I had two quick questions then, based on what we've been talking about, which is, who are your favorite presidents? Mm-hmm. And then who would your Mount Rushmore be? Oh. Who is my? Who are my favorite presidents? Well, I would say. And let, let's let's keep it to the ones in your lifetime. Oh, the ones in my lifetime. Oh, because yes. I, I would say probably my two favorite presidents, not for my lifetime, would be FDR and Abraham Lincoln. Okay, which is you know not too surprising, right. for a lot of people. And yeah, I mean it all. De- it so much depends on what your own politics are. People right? would, would to mention what, Kennedy too. I think you know. No. Yeah, I, I don't think I would personally. Right, right. I, just like sure. the top two are FDR and like. Oh, they like the, the hope or the promise that they thought JFK was bringing. Sure. You know, oh, the whole Camelot thing is Yeah, and the fact that he was martyred, you know, I think makes him more important in right. people's minds. Sure. But who knows what he might have ended up doing mm-hmm. if he had lived. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of arguments on both sides because yep. a lot of people blame him for getting us into the Vietnam War as yep. well. Yep. But, yes, yeah, since I'm... A very young person, you know, I've only had a couple of presidents mm. in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
So I would say, um, yeah, I would say... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? <laughs> when is this podcast going to air? Yeah, it might be, <laughs> depending on how this impeachment turns not out. 2020 hindsight, but foresight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would say just purely on the emotions that I had and the what it represented for our country, that Obama would be the most... Um, would be my top president of my lifetime, mm -hmm. just because of what a rev I mean, who would have thought back even in the 1980s mm -hmm. that we would ever have a, a black president mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. that actually happened. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, it, you know, it seems like we're in a backlash era, but mm -hmm. that's not for us to you know, I'd probably pick the same on. because of, again, emotionally, how mm -hmm. it felt to have him as president. But also in retrospect, I don't know about his actual tenure as president, but you got to love Jimmy Carter. The man. You mean just because of what a pure soul he seems to be? What a great soul, a great like, person. Well, the things he's done after he That's was president. I mean. yeah, That's what I mean. That's what I mean, after. impressive. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think he wasn't particularly effective as president. Right. right. But I do agree that he has done, I mean, he's probably done more for the post-presidential, mm -hmm. you know, model mm -hmm. than any other president. So that's mm -hmm. a good choice. Mm-hmm. So who would be your Mount Rushmore? My Mount Rushmore, gosh. So it would have to be four So people. I'm not I'm not saying presidents, it's not presidents. Right. And also let's keep it to pop culture. Oh, I like this question. Um, let me think. All right, well, I, I think if I were to make my own Mount Rushmore, I would maybe divide it into like art, literature, music, sports, and maybe social activism, just because as a shout out to you know, the characters who are already up there mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they were presidents and leaders of our country, et cetera. So let's see, for art, I would have to say, well, okay, so wait, because I would say Hergé, who was the creator of Tintin, mm. he would be my guy and I'd love to see that face up there. But do they have to be Americans is the question. I feel um, like maybe they should be. Probably in the spirit of it being an American monument. An American monument, monument. okay. But so. I like Hergé. Sure. Oh, well, thank you. He, he could be like a tiny little boulder-sized, you know, you, you'd only see it if you got close up and were <laughs> dangling off of the nose of one of the characters. So it's, I would say if it were an American artist, I mean, there are so many American artists that I admire, but I would say one who maybe exemplified kind of like the spirit of America and Americana, it might be like Norman Rockwell. Mm -hmm. And you almost can imagine that he might have even painted you know, his version of Mount Rushmore. It's funny because I, like when you were starting to say like an American painter, the one I would pick wouldn't be Rockwell, although that totally makes sense because of how he iconicized America. Yeah. Uh, I'd pick Edward Hopper. Oh, yeah. That was another good choice. You know? Yeah. He kind of exemplified a sort of a different, a little bit of a different spin on America. Yeah. And like, and there was like a solitude to his mm -hmm. art, you know, which I feel like a lot of Americans experience. Yeah. And th there's a cinematic aspect to his work mm -hmm. that maybe Hitchcock might have been inspired by as well. So mm -hmm. that's a great choice. Um, so music, I think we might have the same person in mm -hmm. mind. Mm -hmm. Music. So for me, it would be Prince. And me too. Yeah. Prince is definitely going up on that mountain. Yeah, it's got to be. <laughs> and it'd be so much fun to to carve out those jerry curls, you know, because it would be like the classic 84, 85 Prince, right? Absolutely. Purple Rain era. Because when we first did our, the first season of our podcast, Scene by Scene, yes. with Josh and Dean, you chose American Splendor. But in thinking about what could be another movie, mm -hmm. it just occurred to me because, again, we're also trying to relate, you know, we relate to each other through this podcast. Sure. And it's, it's the only way that we actually speak to each that's other. That's right. Yeah. We just, it, <laughs> we're always being recorded when we talk to each other. 
is uh, Purple Rain. We yeah. saw Purple Rain so many times. Yeah. And it truly impacted our puberty, our childhood. Oh, no. I mean, you went there. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you basically introduced me to Prince. I don't think, I don't know if I would have gotten into him mm-hmm. at the time of my life when that was all happening if you hadn't like insisted on me listening to that music and, and like, you know, really going deep into it. Yep. So yep. I appreciate that quite you're, a bit. You're welcome. All right. So getting back to our Mount Rushmore. So literature, it's funny because I'm thinking like, the authors who really made the biggest impression on me when I was younger actually turned out to all be like British authors. Like J.R. Tolkien was the number mm. one for me with The Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, there was like Alan Moore, the great comics writer, who just was so influential on, on my fandom as, as a comics reader. Famously wrote Watchmen. Right. And then there was a female writer named Mary Renault. Mm. I was really into her when I was in high school, and she wrote these sort of modernistic takes on like Greek myths and stories of like Theseus and Achilles, and uh, just her take on it and her way of writing was so great. And she's really one of the underappreciated authors, I think. But again, if we have to stick to American authors, I would say the author Gore Vidal. Oh, wow. I love his work. I've read maybe twenty books of his. Um, he wrote Burr. He wrote Julian, he wrote Myra Breckenridge, just a great writer who, oh. who wrote in all sorts of avenues. But the thing that affected me the most was his series of novels about American history. So right. starting with Burr, and he wrote about Lincoln, and he wrote about the era of the 1890s, and then World War II, and like he captured every major era in American history. So to me, he really deserves to be up on Mount Rushmore just for that. I'm sorry to admit that I've never read Gore Vidal, (gasps) but did he have like a famous fight with Norman Mailer, like on Dick Cavett or something? Yes, he did. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I think think it actually got physical. And Mailer, I think, like came out on top on that one. I don't think Gore Vidal was really a pugilist, whereas Norman Mailer really considered himself like a street fighter. Yeah. To to speak to your literary, because I don't think I chose a literary person when we get to mine, but I... Oh, you've got a list too. Oh, awesome. Well, I asked the question. (laughs) Sure, you you were prepared. (laughs) But you did remind me of how much I love Raymond Carver. Yes. Someone like him or Hemingway, those guys really exemplify... Bukowski. Yeah, sure. I love Bukowski. And I came to Bukowski much later in life. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't read him when I think I was supposed to. Right. You know, I came to him later, and I, and I really could appreciate what he was trying to do. I'm trying to imagine, like, his face on Mount Rushmore would be like, he'd be, like, They like, wouldn't have to carve anything. Yeah. Just show a mountainside. <laughs> Call it Charles Bukowski. <laughs> Asleep. Exactly. <laughs> or drunk or whatever. Yeah. Hungover. But Raymond Carver, like, he... I have one of his collections. I think it's called What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a lot of great short stories. And he's also known for having a great editor, a particular editor yes. whose name escapes me, who knew what to remove or not, you know, not keep in. Because what was great about Raymond Carver's writing was that he would take out the explanation of the story. And you would have to arrive at it yourself based on what he wrote, at least some of his better stories. Gordon Lish was his editor, by Gordon the way. Lish. Oh, yeah. thank you. And uh, Robert Altman sure. made a movie called Shortcuts. Mm-hmm. That's a bunch of Raymond Carver short stories knit together. So yeah. 
But no, he's one of my faves. Interesting. So my problem is now I'm thinking about I have five categories up there. So I don't know if we would have to add an extra head or mm. cut one of these out. But in sports, it's kind of a ridiculous, you know, nomination. But there was a baseball player on the San Francisco Giants when I was a kid named Jack Clark. And I just had such a, a man crush on him as a kid. And he was never the greatest player at any one time, but he was, you know, he was a pretty dominant player for a period. Never made it to the Hall of Fame, but, mm -hmm. you know, then he should be up on Mount Rushmore. Mm -hmm. My boy baseball crush was Bucky Dent. <laughs> I just love Bucky Dent. He, he had the face of a guy on Mount Rushmore, yes, for sure. absolutely. Good looking guy. Yeah. And I actually got to meet him. I remember that. I think you talk about that on Scene by Scene with oh, Josh do and I? Dean. Okay. Yeah, we met so. in the green room of um, the Merv Griffin show. Uh-huh. Because my godmother, Shelly Winters, right. was uh, appearing on that show and happened to be with Bucky Dent. That must have been like right after his heroics in, was it like 78 when he propelled the Yankees into yes. the World Series yes. against the Red Sox. Yeah. So yeah. that's awesome that you got to meet him. So and he was already a favorite of yours. He was a favorite of mine. And yeah. I didn't watch too much football, but I remember my... When I was a kid, my favorite football player was Tony Dorsett. Mm, yeah, great Dallas have... Cowboy. Yeah. I never got enough into football to have like a real hero in that era. But you play you know? basketball regularly. Yes. Do you have a basketball hero? Oh, it would be Michael Jordan for okay. sure. Yeah. Um, and I played just like him. Mm. They call me like the White Jordan. White Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so finally, in the arena of social activism, a face I would love to see up on Mount Rushmore was a big hero of mine when I was a kid. I had two heroes. I had two posters up on my wall. One of them was Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist and escaped slave who became, you know, uh, one of the great speakers for human rights back in the era of the Civil War and afterwards. And the other one was Harriet Tubman. Oh. And she was, as we know, because it was a recent movie about her, one of the uh, most important abolitionists and, and activists in the Underground Railroad and an uh, incredible woman. So I would love to see Harriet Tubman's face up on Mount Rushmore. That's a, actually probably the best choice. Well, thank you. you. Know? Weren't they also trying to put her on the $20 bill? It's been delayed for some reason, but I think that's still in the works. Well, hopefully that'd be nice. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Mine aren't as interesting because I wasn't thinking in, in terms of the breadth of what you were going for, of like, you know, art, politics, sports, all that. So my original... That's okay. <laughs> my original uh, Mount Rushmore, and these things change. Exactly. You ask me next week and there'll be, be something else. four different people. But I'll always have Harriet Tubman in. Yes. Mine was up Prince that we shared. Yeah. I... I've always loved Mary Tyler Moore, especially that show, the Mary Tyler Moore yes, show. Yes, great just, show. Just like, it was just ahead of its time. You can still watch that show, and it's completely relevant with all the characters and mm -hmm. the types of people. And yeah, great archetypal characters as well. Right. So Mary Tyler Moore would definitely be on there. She was a pioneer for women in a lot of ways, you know, mm -hmm. from the Dick Cavett show to Mary Tyler Moore. That's the third reference to Dick Cavett? Or, no, we've had Merv Griffin Oh, did I say once. Dick Cavett? I'm sorry. Oh, what's the show she Dick did? Dick Van Dyke? Dick Van Dyke. Yes. That's what I meant. And then later on, like, Ordinary People, where she plays kind of like... Yes. Terrifying, bitchy mom. Mm -hmm. Like, all this stuff. She was great. Yeah. My favorite artist, probably in comics, is Jack Kirby. I've always cited Jack Kirby. You know, great influence in, in my work. He would have to carve his own face up I there. I think so. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it'd like, have to be in the Kirby manner. That's right. Yeah. You have to come from some satellite from outer space that's shooting a, a, <laughs> right. a purple ray down into the mountain and carving it out for him. Uh, some cosmic gamma ray. Or yes. Anything. 
And then I I think B. Arthur, like Harriet Tubman, has to be up there. Like, okay. I'm sorry. Now you, tell us why. <laughs> you know, I don't know why. I remember when it's I was... It's from the Star Wars Holiday Special. That's probably, what really made her... Probably, you know? Entrenched no, in your mind. Never. Uh, <laughs> but I do remember her TV show, Maud, being on in the background mm-hmm. when I was a little kid. And there's no way I could relate to that, you know? And I was probably scared of the show. I'm scared of this 47-year-old yes. woman, you know, with a husky voice. Yeah. Talking about abortion on television, you know? <laughs> it wasn't until years later that I revisited Maude. I was like, oh, my God. And even 2020, I don't think they could make that show today. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the concerns. Right. But the way they made that show. Yeah. And for its time. Exactly. Unbelievable. Yeah. You know? And it, I just love her persona. I love mm-hmm. what she said and did. And it was very empowering and bolding. That's awesome. I still think it's the holiday special. But anyway... Was that all four of yours? That was my four. Mary Tyler Moore, Prince, Jack Kirby, B. Arthur. Although the last, like a week ago, I would have said Sergio Leone in there somewhere, you know, but... Nope, not American. Can't right. do it. That's right. Honorary mention. That's but right. yeah, all right. It's a very diverse collection. I applaud your Thank you. your choices very much. Yeah, what order would you have? So it's B. Arthur, Prince... Man, woman, man, woman, Mary probably Tyler be fun. Moore. So start with, yeah, the way, yeah. The way I said it, Mary Tyler Moore, Prince, um, yeah, whatever. whatever. Okay. Whatever works. I like oh, because it. you don't want B. Arthur's hair competing with Prince's hair. That's true. So. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're trying to climb down, there'd be no space for climbing between those. So, yeah, you're right. Good question. Thank you for asking. That's fun to think about. So we'll have to change the Facebook group to the man on Prince's nose. But other than that, we're good. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Although... How interesting would uh, North by Northwest be if they had to deal with cleavage? <laughs> but who's cleavage? I mean, we do see Cary Grant shirtless for a good no, couple of minutes. No, I meant like if one of the monument, one of the, oh, the heads gotcha. was female with a bust that had right, a cleavage. Right. So that's why they were very modest right. with where they stopped. That's right. Okay. Well, on that cleavage note, that about wraps up minute 132 so we hope you enjoyed it and if you did you might enjoy our other podcast scene by scene with josh and dean where we talk about the movie american splendor we talk about harvey Pekar, we talk about the joys and challenges of being professional cartoonists and there's more than 30 episodes in the can ready for you to listen to as well as a bunch of bonus episodes so yeah if you're interested in scene by scene with josh and dean you can find us at scenebyscenepodcast.com, where all our episodes are archived, as well as lots of artwork and things related to the film. And we're on the Apple Podcasts and Google Play and all the other podcatchers, and Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean on Facebook. About this show we're doing now, Hitchcock Minute, we are available at The Man on Washington's Nose on Facebook and on Twitter at Hitchcock Minute. So join us here tomorrow on The Hitchcock Minute. Goodbye, Mr. Thornhill, wherever you are.